So, um, yeah, I think. Oh, I hear you. What do we, why? Who's doubling? You have some new Who, me? Yeah. Oh, it's me. <laughs> Hi everyone, how are you? Hello. Oh, hi, long time. Nice <laughs> to see you all. <laughs> Hello, everyone. How's your weekend? <laughs> it was funny as we were going back and forth because my Discord was stuck off of mute, so I had to hold the phone up. But as soon as I came in here, it all went speaker. It's just, it's kind of weird. How are you, Frank? How's life? How was your weekend? Hello, hello. Yeah, I've been uh, quite busy and uh, missed a lot of good rooms, I assume. And uh, yeah, but I'm making progress uh, along. You know, I'm take a, a, a dive into the, uh, as I mentioned before, I was uh, trying to get the simulation going on the material I'm working on. And I hope, you know, uh, to, to have that done by, uh, uh, I mean, soon. So. I mean, uh, I I I I saw that a uh, a lot of good discussion going on, and uh, yeah, I I, I thought I, I should uh, catch up uh, uh, with the replays. Yeah, uh, yeah. Otherwise, I mean, it's just great. Yeah. Oh, 
Okay, thank you, Frank. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, shall we start? I know it's kind of not our time, so I guess that's why not too many people are here, but the other purpose of doing this room is to create a more or less one hour recording as a summary that we put up on our social platforms. Um, you know, so if people miss the week that they don't have to necessarily go through hours and hours of recordings. And then if they are interested in one topic specifically, they can just listen to the whole replay. So, um, yeah. Hi, Jenny. How are you? If you want to join us on stage, ask questions, please come. Feel, feel welcome to join us. Okay, cool. So, um, the first, um, one I pinned the link of the paper um, is um, it was yeah there it is it's working it was the paper's title is sexual dimorphism in the neural mechanisms of spinal hyperexcitability um, across rodent and human models of pathological pain um, I think this was really interesting and also really important work. We only really started, um, we only really started to look at sexual differences in different disorders and mental health disorders and how the brain work very recently. It's a um, long tradition that in neuroscience, um, and you know, in, in, uh, the studies in animal models, also preclinical studies, that most of it was done only in male animals and subjects, um, also in human studies, because um, having the hormonal cycle um, messing up the data was very inconvenient, and there was no rule to um, have... Um, the need to include female um, animal models or patients. Uh, so this made the data cleaner and you needed less subjects to make things statistically significant. And only a few years ago, NIH finally um, had the rule that you have to have both males and females and the same amount, uh, which um, kind of created the opportunity uh, to have also money and funding to look at these um, sexual dimor dimorphisms. I don't know how to say it right in English right now. Um, so uh, not just did it address this issue, it also basically created a way for a labs that even wanted to do this to create an opportunity to apply for funding to do this, which was not there before, um, which is pretty sad. But um, yeah, so I think it's really interesting. So this work <clears throat> was done by, um, you know, Michael, Dr. Michael Hildebrand and colleagues. Um, and um, yeah, um, it was really interesting that uh, in pain um, that the females um, or um, hormone, the fem female hormones 
uh, were kind of protecting, uh, in this case, the females from a specific set of um, basically long-term potentiation uh, for um, for pain, this hyperexcitability um, in the this um, peripheral neurons to have basically inflammatory pain sensation and especially involved was um, as a mechanism was BDNF and um, NMDAR um, potentiation uh, which had signaling and elements involved such as KCC2 and STEP61 which uh, then upregulated excitatory elements um, such as gluen2b and p gluen2b um, and um, uh, in females versus male rats this was um, yet the signaling pathway was different because um, when they changed um, basically the sex hormones by um, removing a female sex organs um, this difference was basically um, gone so it's really interesting it's a starting point uh, to look at these uh, different mechanisms they didn't they don't know yet how exactly and which female hormones uh, because it's a pretty dirty way basically to just remove the organs and you don't know exactly what the mechanism is and um, and how much, um, which hormone contributes in which way. So this is something for the future, but it's a really important and interesting start. And um, yeah, I think it was a really great talk. Um, if you have anything to add, please go ahead. Or if you have any questions. Yeah, it, it has been historically a problem to get good data on women. And um, this was such a fascinating example of how the mechanism was completely different. So in terms of drug development, certainly within pain medication, you know, half the population may ha have this, you know, completely different mechanism going on. And, um, but yeah, it's a great trend that we're starting to look more into the sexual uh, dimorphic differences. Um, because in some cases they can be quite profound. So, okay, then. Yeah. Uh, also, oh, go, sorry. Go ahead. I'm just going to say, um, also that it was really good for that reason as well, and um, a big one, and also that um, the kind of chronic pain situation that people have to face, um, I think is something that's not really given the direct appreciation of its seriousness that it's got you know too many times i've heard of other people with chronic pain being told by uh doctors ah just get more exercise or have a hot bath or whatever um and they're not being treated seriously this was like a, a big big shout out to everybody that you know your pain is real and we care about it and there's people working on it and you even had some people thanking you on that katarina right in the back channels or one in such a room so yeah, big shout out to that. And that's why I thought that was something was great too. 
Yeah, that was, yeah, we, I had people uh, thanking us for um, doing this room that were suffering from chronic pain or I know people that suffer from chronic pain. And um, yeah, this was, uh, yeah, I think this was a really important room and um, yeah, we'll hopefully we'll have more of those <laughs> in the future um, that people have personally, you know, um, personal interest or concerns about um, for different reasons. So, yeah, I agree. Okay, then we had Dr. Nicholas Baldiston from UPenn. Uh, he's a research assistant professor of psychiatry and he uh, gave this presentation. Up is the link for the presentation how he's using um, brain connectivity to target neuromodulation. Um, is the link working for everyone? Or it's just my connection, not not too good. I tried to... Yeah, um, it, was, it was working. Okay, good. Yeah, so he... Um, so what he's doing is um, basically creating... Uh, a system where you can basically um, uh, have a more personalized way of using TMS. And um, so what is the principle of um, TMS? Uh, you basically, for different disorders that so far, uh, from and people that so far um, drugs didn't help, um, people have been assigned to this clinical trials, and I think there are also clinics now that use this technology basically to help uh, people with depression and anxiety. But there's also research and clinical trials in other uh, in other um, disorders such as anxiety and autism and so on. Uh, so um, basically, the idea is that you use this very powerful magnet to uh, to as um, for neuromodulation. So uh, what you want to do is basically change uh, synaptic plasticity with this um, powerful magnet. And you want to do this um, in a brain region that it, that makes sense in this type of disorder and also in a frequency um, that is helpful. Um, and this technique has been recently showing really good results um, with uh, almost no um, uh, secondary or side effects. I think the side effects are headaches, like acute headaches and sometimes some acute amnesia that usually um, resolves um, within the same day. Um, and so far, there has been really not much effort in basically making a personalized uh, treatment attempt where you uh, look at brain activity data first, and then based on these um, uh, based on the data to come up uh, with a perfect placement, basically, uh, for treatment. Um, and this is what um, Dr. Wallison has been doing, and quite well. His models <laughs> seem to be 
uh, quite accurate and um, yeah I think it will help a lot of people and um, it's really important work that he is doing because a lot of people are suffering um, and more and more people are suffering with mental health disorders and drugs don't seem to have the effect we would need to have we still lose a lot we lose more and more lives actually to a different mental health disorder especially so i think this is really important and it gives a lot of people hope uh, because it's actually showing really a successful treatment option so um, yeah does anyone have to add anything to this Of course, I was just seeing astrocytes everywhere, but um, I actually really thought this was a great technique to to get at at them in the sense that, um, well, it, 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 in two ways. I remember commenting on there could be some uh, better coil design for more focused activity, um, and you know, and that's something that you know is is done a lot certainly in an antenna design um that is one area but um just understanding how it works i really wonder how much the magnetic fields are coupling with the calcium waves as opposed to just the the neuron activity but it's interesting because you know we do we have seen recent work that the astrocytes take uh, or play a role in depression and anxiety and so forth so this was really fascinating. I wonder if if they've looked at the effect of TMS on inflammation, because I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the inflammation theories about possibly causing mental illnesses, or at least some of them. I'm done. Yeah, and that's through the the microglia, right? If there's if, if the inflammation the microglia carry out the the response to that, and um, I mean it's a good question to to look at how that would um, interact with inflammation and whether it has a calming effect and if that's behind some of these mechanisms. Okay, uh, does anyone have more questions about this or should we move to the next That's one? That's a really good talk and anyone who, anyone who um, hears about this should go to the replays and that's me. Okay, if uh, not, we can move on to the next link. I'm putting up the paper. This was, um, yeah, this was a really interesting talk, but also really complicated. <laughs> so bear with me. Um, we had um, Dr. Kashi, how do you say it, Victoria? Shipaglia, Kachiapalia, Kachiapalia, 
he talked about uh, massive gravitons uh, being maybe a good candidate for uh, dark matter. And he's a senior re researcher at the CNRS in France. And he is working in theoretical physics, particle uh, physics, and uh, actually also applications to epidemiology, uh, such as COVID. He helped during the acute COVID times with his um, modeling, um, you know, capabilities and data processing capabilities to go through a lot of very acute um, COVID data. Um, yeah, so um, basically what they um, discovered was that um, the current models of um, of uh, dark matter doesn't they don't really explain very well um, where all this dark matter comes from um, and um, there was there's really no explanation no good explanation um, where where does you know how could um, how could these dark matter um, particles emerge? And um, his research team um, believed to have basically shed some light on, on this uh, problem. Uh, so, um, so far the promising dark matter candidates were axions, neutrinos, and weakly interactive uh, massive particles. But um, he, he looked, he and his team, they looked in other um, massive gravitons that could be viable dark matter candidates. And um, they suggest, like his, um, his model suggests that they were produced during collisions between ordinary particles in the environment of the very, very early universe. Um, actually, in like the first, I don't know, milliseconds, or I, I forgot the exact time scale, following the Big Bang. Um, and um, they, um, they, did, they carried out the theoretical study by exploring this possibility if, um, you know, if that would be an accurate model, and they published basically a paper with the theoretical calculations. Um, what they also did was looking at extra dimensions um, that uh, we can't really um, uh, we can't really perceive because how I explained that we are like these tiny tiny um, things that are basically glued to a wall and all we can perceive is this wall we are walking along on but that they are extra dimensions we ca we cannot measure or perceive so far um, that were needed to um, to basically create um, this um, this dark matter and um, because they explain that when gravity propagates in this invisible space it materializes massive gravitons their coupling to ordinary matter is very weak, being of gravitational origin. So it's really hard for us to measure or perceive 
uh, in some form have like an experimental <clears throat> experimentally show uh, how they are created and 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 measure them and show them because their um, coupling to our matter is so weak. Um, so um, it would be a really really rare occurrence um, that massive gravitons would be produced um, in a process in our dimension. Um, so um, yeah, I hope I'd, I'm, <laughs> I explained this um, in a way that um, our guest speakers wouldn't be ashamed of me. So <laughs> I brought <laughs> This is definitely not a talk for the faint of heart, but it's absolutely a talk worth listening to. Uh, I've got three words for everyone listening. Primordial black holes. <laughs> just, I'm going to say that one more time. Primordial black yes. holes. That just had to be said twice. Um, we were talking about them in there, which are absolutely awesome sounds as well. So this is the, this is the real science here, the real... Um, core of the universe type of fabric stuff. It's completely incredible. Difficult, um, like I said, everybody feel free to chew on the speaker and um, and the replays. And if you get a chance to look up a few terms, don't ever be disheartened. If there's bits you don't understand, this is really, really advanced stuff. I myself was chasing um, a lot of uh, terms to even vaguely understand it, but nobody's gonna walk away from this feeling that they didn't learn something really cool that's me thank you yeah i didn't get to see this one uh it does sound interesting so they their their thesis is that the the dark matter is was created in the very very early universe and um hasn't uh it's has been stable since and it hasn't uh it's not being created yeah i wrote it yeah. on that yet and that gravitational dark matter was produced one picosecond after the Big Bang. And these primordial black holes were very important because you need, um, you know, um, very, a lot of mass being, you know, uh, under high pressure, basically, or other than that, it wouldn't really work. Um, and um, that um yeah when particle physics um um yeah so the energy scale um so this would be the most effective time um below the energy scale in which higgs bosons reside um that this would be this one picosecond after the big bang um so but so modern or you know modern black holes aren't creating more or they're not creating the conditions it would just only be in the early universe that was their yeah case. exactly so cool yeah and the next step would be to now um so they they have this um model where um, extra dimensions are wrapped around our dimensions and they are interested in investigating more features of this um, extra dimensions 
and they are particularly interested in the role that um, uh, played by a scalar particle called radion and on the potential testability um, in current and future particle colliders of you know, recreating that scenario and uh, showing this experimentally. And yeah, let's see. Basically, basically, if you have the time, don't bother with Doctor Strange Part 2, Multiverse of Madness. Just listen to our, our replays and talks. That's so much more worth it. Right, <laughs> Katharina? Well, yeah, and be aware that if you listen, you know, we had Dr. Barak Shoshani here also about faster than light travel and or even uh, time travel. And he stated, you know, the more he learned over the years about physics and all of this, that he gets sometimes really annoyed with sci-fi. So be aware of that side effect that, you know, there, there will be <laughs> a lot of sci-fi that you won't like and others you will love because it's actually pretty accurate so yeah be be aware of that side effect when you come to all physics and universe rooms yeah leave your preconceptions at home you're about to get your mind just wished away okay uh shall we move to the next one we had dr moses here uh, which was a really incredible talk, uh, BCI, um, where you had he had a paralyzed patient speak again uh, using BCI. So uh, here's the, the presentation. He also shared uh, unpublished data. He was pretty nervous about it, but then he ended up here. And actually, he had a lot of um, a a lot of guest speakers that came recently did that. They didn't just share the paper we asked them and the project we asked them to share, but also um, ended up sharing what they are actively working on right now, which is not published yet. So it's a great honor to to have that, uh, I think. And um, yeah, so Dr. Moses, he... Uh, works mostly on novel methods to decoding speech from brain activity and do clinical trial um, clinical trials um, with patients that are not able to speak on their own and use um, basically the brain activity to create a system that basically lets them communicate with uh, the environment again and uh, in real time and not in this uh, previous methods they had like around a word a minute which is really really slow and um, yeah he basically uh, managed to scale this up to was it 15 words a minute um, yeah I think it got up there yeah yep, 15 words 15 yep so um, so previous um, technology was using eye tracking technology that made people spell out a word, which um, yeah, which 
created this delay of uh, one minute, one word. Uh, and with brain-computer interfaces for communication, VCRs, if you look at slide six, you can see basically the whole idea of this technology, how, how it works. <clears throat> and, um, and you basically implant, have implants in brain regions that encode speech production um, that are also shown uh, in the slide nine. And with um, with recording basically the activity, uh, you can create, you can uh, decode based on this neural activity um, what people want to say. Um, and um, yeah, so they show he showed his first that was also published the first clinical trial participant Bravo one. Um, that uh, had unintelligible vo vocalizations and um, they show where they put the neural implant um, a 128 channel um, device um, and they um, could the first they started with decoding three words and then um, create the speech detection model and word classification model. And then they scaled it up to 50 words. Yeah, and then after after some training, they could decode uh, whole sentences um, in real time. Um, and um, yeah, this, this is really impressive data and now, uh, he then shared the unpublished part where they looked at um, low frequency signals um, that uh, basically recently improved um, decoding quite significantly, even more. Um, they also show um, better spatial overlap of contributions of activity in the lower frequency range. Um, that basically um, created this, this um, better signal-to-noise ratio and, um, yeah, improved the system even more. So, um, yeah, um, this is a proof-of-concept demonstration um, and hopefully one day we have this um, in more and more people that are kind of have this locked in syndrome. Do you have anything to add? Say, please go ahead. Yeah, I thought it was it was really, really fascinating, and he, that um, that he went directly to a patient that couldn't speak, and 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 you know improved their ability to articulate. That was that was just really great. I was I looking at the data. I think it's around slide thirty-two or so. Um, when they included the low-frequency data, I thought for sure that you know astrocytes waves are a part of that low-frequency signal, and um, it was it was great to see that it that there was such a dramatic improvement, and um, there's so many directions to go in from there. But that was just really encouraging. So I thought it was great, great work. And I thought it was really inspiring how much he's making a difference in these people's lives. And again, like a previous speaker we've had, um, 
I think that even just having them here and being able to talk to everyone lets everyone know that these are issues that are being addressed, are being worked on, and finding it's being worked on by somebody with such a level of intelligence and compassion in equal measure um, is incredibly inspiring. And that can't be uh, overstated here. Yeah, this is uh, this uh, also. I, I think this uh, research is, uh, is is really brilliant and it's been worked in in terms of. Uh, uh, I'm particularly impressed by the uh, <coughs> uh, the positioning of uh, uh, the the uh, investigation. I mean, the setup uh, in essentially uh, putting the uh, knowledge of science and engineering into uh, solving uh, real. Uh, important practical, uh, actually, uh, life enriching uh, problems. So that's uh, uh, I think this is uh, uh, all, uh, because due to this nature, it, mu it has to apparently it involves uh, so many uh, components. Uh, it's uh, uh, it's it's a multi dis uh, it's a, yeah multi component uh, multi discipline uh, work and. Uh, what uh, uh, caught my attention is the uh, language models that they use. Uh, apparently, because due to the uh, prototyping and in so far they were only proof of concept, so they didn't uh, um, uh, bother with uh, you know more sophisticated version. But uh, uh, apparently, that uh, you know a language model is uh, what you know usually uh, you can think of uh, based on uh, fragments of uh, words or some other parts of uh, uh, a language and uh, then the model the computer will give you a, a, a sentence in one language or other yeah so I think that's a this is again you know uh, as previous uh, uh, friends shared that this is an amazing work yeah. I highly recommend Okay, uh, we have one more room. Um, that was um, Dr. Julian Hunt. Um, I think he had a really great concept, um, very useful and great concept um, addressing a big problem. Uh, so when we have renewable energy or we want to make use of renewable energy, we have basically huge spikes during the day, for example, with uh, solar power and summer and so on, uh, where we have a lot of um, energy coming in, our wind power when there's a lot of wind and so on. Uh, but it's not a steady flow. So there's a huge need for creating humongous batteries on a big scale. And, you know, there are people working on various ways to do this um and um yeah <laughs> dr julian hunt had uh, he was moving to apartment where the elevator broke down and he had to move all this this stuff up um um sweating and he came up with the idea that um why not use this gravitational energy storage um, based on lifts or elevators in high-rise buildings? Um, 
and why would this work? So um, first of all, in bigger cities where there's high energy demand, uh, there are usually quite a lot of high-rise buildings and um, new um, elevator systems nowadays have um, have this regenerative uh, braking where you basically um, regenerate the energy consumption that you used in the morning to bring everyone up uh, in the evening on the way down or during lunchtime. So uh, this is already a system built in in many new high-rise buildings, this regenerative braking. And um, the idea is that while you have a lot of energy coming in, uh, you could bring up all these weights up the high-rise building. And then when you would need to generate energy, <clears throat> if there's enough mass, you could create, uh, you could basically store that energy by having this um, dense mass um, uh, cubes or whatever shape you want it to be up on the high-rise building and whenever you need to release that energy you can bring it down the elevator that has the regenerative braking and um, that way basically release the energy that you stored. I think it's a really cool idea of uh, using technology we already have built in in so many places. The only thing you would need is basically, um, you know, have salt and sand, salt water and sand mixture cubes um, that would be stored on the roof. Um, we discussed in different options. Maybe you could have at the same time bioreactors being in that salt water while they are stored up on the roof. They could uh, create some carbon capture or other ways of energy, um, you know, renewable energy uh, generation. So I think this was a really wonderful, simple idea that was staring us in the face, but nobody had it. And he wrote a paper about it. And it created a lot of attention and I think, uh, you know, it, it deserves it. And I hope we will actually, he doesn't have a company. He doesn't want to, you know, be an entrepreneur. He wants to keep doing his research. Uh, he just wants people to implement it to basically help, um, you know, with coping with the changing to renewable energies and saving the planet <laughs> to some extent with this. So I think, yeah, it was a very great talk. Can I just jump in um, with saying that this is like the, the best example of uh, that old Chinese proverb, that it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. Um, other people, like other us normal people, would just complain that the lift wasn't working, but no. No, 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 he came up with renewable energy solutions from it, which I think is a lesson to be learned for all of us in this. <laughs> Who knows how many problems yes. could be solved if we actually focused on more the solution than complaining about the problem. Exactly, I agree, I agree. Totally, yeah, it was, it was such a great... I'm so glad the elevator broke <laughs> You even said that to him. Yeah. You even said, I'm happy your elevator broke for you.
Yeah, and that just curiosity, you know? Like as you're saying, Jamie, he could have he could have gotten more interested in the problem and feeling bad, but he's he's you know, he's doing science and he's maintaining his curiosity and that's why we're here, you know, just keeping that stoked. One hundred percent, Victoria. Go science. Go science. Yeah, it was brilliant. It was just such such an elegant simple idea and when I think he was saying you know it's just this all this potential energy is staring us in the face why not use it or how about let's use it I missed this one too but I you know I saw some of the back channel it does seem so simple and it's there um, what were some of the criticisms I mean what what's what's wrong why don't we just do this well, you know, it's maybe a little bit expensive, but he said, you know, sand and salt water, that's why he used that, because that is not that expensive, but it's still, you know, we need to do something about this problem, and there yeah, are different ways of calculating how expensive this really is, if you calculate, you know, all the damage from pollution and future generations, it becomes actually pretty cheap, and it's the simplest way right now to do something about it because you don't need new technology. You don't need to put new elevators in the buildings. You just have to have all this weight and finding a spot for it. He said, you know, you could have people getting maybe uh, some, you know, give them some monthly uh, payment for having such weights maybe even stored in their apartment so people would get a little bit of money from it um, if you want to make space in apartments but you know you could add bioreactors to even make more energy <laughs> there was one question uh, one that there's a company that is building cranes and that they want to build cranes and use it the same idea and it would maybe be cheaper uh, in like um, more um, rural areas, I said, uh, next to wind turbines and so. And I'm just, I just know in Germany, for example, in Denmark and so, people are complaining already about wind turbines disturbing the landscape. And now you have additionally those cranes. And what happens if there's a hurricane or something to these cranes? And I, I don't see why compare the two, just do all of them. We need all of them. Like we need all the ideas and all the implementation we can do. And yeah. the alternative is really not an option to keep destroying our planet and we all die. So w what is too expensive? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, they're called energy vaults. And that was, I mean, that was really the only, yeah. It was it was the typical things that you hear when somebody is is presenting an idea about sustainable a sustainable energy source. And so what Katarina was just talking about are they're called energy vaults and they're they're just like a huge tower of concrete. So I just looked it up because I'd heard about the carbon um, footprint. So manufacture of cement produces about 0.9 pounds of CO2 for every pound of cement. <laughs> So pound per pound, you know, plus they're ugly, plus they're cement. So 
it was it it, it just it just felt um the the only criticisms appeared to be very devil's advocate-ish and when you compare that to to real costs that we're experiencing now any any climate change any disease you know any asthma cancer <laughs> what you know where where are the real costs so it just it was such an exciting idea also because they already exist the buildings already exist the lifts already exist so why i think i was gonna say why not why not say yes and and put um yeah and just have diverse sources of energy i was thinking about this again last night actually that i think that maybe as a culture we're used to relying on one energy source or you know few energy sources like coal and petrol and natural gas and so this is the standard and 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 but if you look at a natural system, there's things are diversified, you know, like a healthy natural system, meaning, you know, one that's sustaining itself, it's there are diverse energy sources and, you know, okay, there's the sun, but you know what I'm saying? Um, that's that diversity creates, gen, creates health. And so it makes so much sense to diversify our sources of energy that we're using. So why not the lift? And I also thought it was cool that it was called lift energy because it was kind of like a double use of the word lift. That's kind of cool too. Yeah, and the, the key is just, you know, you can just change policies. Like New York City now, um, it's uh, years old now, but um, if you build a new building, you have to also create some green space. And we have some new parks by rivers and really pretty parks that people use a lot i mean they are full of people walking and enjoying outdoor pretty spaces thanks to this policy change like it it creates a better place to live and this then in the end pays out by um you know around those pretty green spaces the real estate prices for rental and buying go up like crazy so um it's not even something bad for the building and um you can just create policies that you know all these high-rise buildings um either they pay more taxes or something or they have this lift energy storage and some solar panels i don't know but I think people are becoming more aware and it's also more attractive for a building to be green and to be allowed to have that uh, low carbon footprint uh, certified as a company and so on. So uh, I, because people are more aware and want to live in spaces that, you know, are better for the environment and pay more for it. Um, so I think it would be a pretty straightforward thing to do and I don't see any it yeah it would occupy it uh, occupy a little bit of space in these buildings to have these weights um, but they could get that back by having higher rents and paying maybe less taxes and so on so I think it would be a pretty easy thing to do Yeah, that was our week. Um, we have an exciting week ahead. 
Um, so let me give you a little bit of a preview for next week. We will have tomorrow Dr. Enright talking about forest microbes that can survive megafires. We have been seeing them in the recent years more and more uh, due to global warming. Um, and for as any natural space to bounce back, uh, we need microbiopes that can survive this to have soil that uh, will be able to regenerate. Um, so yeah, Dr. Enright is working on that and he published um, his work pretty recently with kind of some promising results. Then we will have on Tuesday, Dr. Um, Manubri and Dr. Rissi, and they have a really cool research um, where they are creating new colors using gold and DNA. Uh, so stay tuned for that. It's, um, it's really cool work. Whenever you see the rooms, the description have the DOI. Um, so if you copy the DOI, you can you can look at the actual paper before if you're interested in that. Um, so yeah, uh, it will be a really interesting room of DNA engineered hydrogels with gold and creating new colors. Um, we'll have a room of, with Dr. Collins protecting the microbiome with synthetic biology. And on Thursday, we'll have Dr. Auti, uh, nonlinear dynamics of two time crystals. So we had here Dr. Pedram Roshan um, from uh, Google, the senior researcher from Google, leading the research um, about time crystals. And uh, this group from the UK has uh, created um, two quantum time crystals and looked at the dynamics of, of those two time crystals interacting. And on Friday, we'll have Dr. Jill, uh, multi-omic rejuvenation of human cells, um, which will be a really interesting rejuvenation room. And then next uh, week, we'll have then Dr. Percucci and Dr. Dayal, that spotted, spotted the farthest galaxy ever discovered. And they will talk about this discovery um, here with us. So yeah, exciting stuff is coming up. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll hear you all again and have every week a great recap room because we had really cool speakers. <laughs> thank you, Katrina. You do great rooms. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Joyce. Thank you for coming all the time and thank you everyone for supporting this, um, you know, for asking questions, for being there, listening, being our regular audience and uh, yeah, supporting our speakers, feel them feel welcome and yeah, creating this club all together. So uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Joyce. A lot of good speakers next week. I'm really looking forward to this one with the gold DNA and everything. I, 
I'm looking forward to every single one of them for all different reasons, but this one just caught me. It's been very fascinating. So everyone, um, be there, um, and we'll look forward to catching all up with you on Monday. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Okay. Thank you. Three, two, one, bye. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday or happy Monday for wherever you are. Bye. bye.